Hello, and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which now feels a little bit like ancient history. Yeah, I think I was uh, Sappho back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week, we're discussing Normal People by Sally Rooney, 2018 bestseller and hit 2020 BBC TV adaptation. The story follows Connell and Marianne as they fall in love in the final year of school in County Sligo, Ireland, and as they go through university at Trinity College Dublin, moving in and out of intimacy. Marianne is rich and cultured and from an abusive, dysfunctional family, while Connell is working class and raised by a single mom who cleans Marianne's family's house for work. At school, Connell is the popular, socially powerful one, Marianne the unpopular, bullied weirdo. But at university, the power balance shifts dramatically in Marianne's favor. Normal People is Rooney's second novel. It follows an equally monotonously named, also highly regarded debut called Conversations with Friends. But Normal People promptly entered the stratosphere. It was the winner of the Waterstones Book of the Year 2018 and longlisted for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. The book won the Novel of the Year at the Anne Post Irish Book Awards and was the Costa Book Prize Novel of the Year. Um, interestingly, kind of the, the Waterstones perspective on it was very, very strident. B. Carvalho, fiction buyer at Waterstones, said that normal people had cemented Sally Rooney's reputation as the voice of her generation and one of the most exciting novelists around today. Its success is testament to the health of literary fiction. The Guardian called it a future classic, sublime, and the literary phenomenon of the decade. So that's the book. Tom, what, what, what have you got to say about the TV? Well, the bad news for you, Zoe, is that Conversations with Friends is also about to become a TV show. So get ready for a whole new wave of hype coming. Oh, no. Um, but this recent adaptation has indeed garnered adulation uh, throughout the kind of British press. Um, the Guardian describing it as near perfect from whichever direction you come at it. It's a beautiful, hugely beautiful thing. Um, the Independent saying that the adaptation has captured the intensity and longing of the novel and will bring Rooney's work to the attention of those who don't know it, all five of them. Um, a sign, really, of quite how astonishingly influential this book and now this adaptation has become. Um, one last proof of that, in the first week of it being released on BBC iPlayer, it had no less than 16 million views. Um, so really, it's what everyone has been watching in lockdown and getting very excited about. Just to sort of add a little bit onto the plot that you sketched, Zoe, I think what's interesting is that in some ways it's a miniature. You know, it's really just focused on one relationship, which it analyzes quite closely, and that we see in sort of snapshots. The book is structured um, in the sort of gaps um, and the sort of interesting gaps and in the different moments in this relationship between 2011 and 2015. To that extent, it reminded me of a movie like Blue Valentine. Have you seen that, Zoe? Um, I think I have seen it. Um, remind me who's in it. This is Ryan Gosling and Michelle yes, Williams. Yes, I've totally seen it. It's, that's very good. I love... It's incredibly good. Yeah. I, mean, I, I would support really... the hype around that one, yeah. <laughs> that's a story of sort of relationship breakdown, you know, and it 
kind of plays around with time so that you see the happy points interspersed with the sad points and so you both understand why they're together and also why they're broken up. So this is, this is taking one relationship and sort of prizing it apart. Um, but in this sense, trying to do it in a very contained place. It really is just, you know, four, five years of these young people's lives um, and in a very sort of specific Irish location. Zoe, what do you think you enjoyed more, the book or the TV adaptation? Well, I probably enjoyed the book more. Um, I have severe reservations about its style, but I think um, it did have an admirable sort of narrative drive and, and structure, whereas the, the TV just sort of ended up feeling a little bit like uh, fancy kind of vegan porn, as it were. That That's a kind of very uh, dismissive <laughs> way of putting it. We'll return to that. That's pretty much all the good I have to say about the book in the sense that I think the story was in, in kind of inescapably uh, fascinating because reading about intimate relationships is always fascinating. Um, <laughs> some of us have made a career out of doing. I've made a career. Some of us, some of us think it's so fascinating. We think about literally nothing else. But and, and actually, I envy her ability to render uh, the details of it in a way that that works so well. But I, I mean, the style of the book, and I think there's something really interesting about why it's been so successful. Why it's hit a chord in the way it did. You know, it's not the first book to deconstruct a relationship, but it is probably the most monotone in the way this, it's written. It's, it's flat. It's got this really strange prose, which is sort of almost frictionless. Like your, your eye just kind of mm. skids along the page. There's nothing to block it. There's no punctuation almost. The only punctuation she uses is a comma. It's, so it's very kind of pared down, very minimalist. I happen to think that that is a bit of a depressing style if it's going to be called an example of the health of literary fiction today, as the Waterstones buyer did. Uh, I grew up reading essentially, well, the canon, but not just the canon, all kinds of books. And, and they were so much more colorful. And language was something authors enjoyed and played with. And, and, and it, it wasn't just sentence after sentence with some commas. But I think the bigger thing that kind of made me feel a bit sad about the success of this book and the way that it's being confused in my mind with, with the literary masterpiece is the fact that it does remind me of how I think a generation raised on the cadences of the internet and, and sort of instant chat now understand language and relate to language. And it is a much more clever and compact way, but it lacks all the joy and complexity, I think, um, and, and play that was in literature that, that I grew up enjoying. I mean, even now I'm revisiting lots of Kingsley Amos books. And I love the way that his, his the language is, is so full of punctuation and play. What people obviously want is stillness, ease, frictionlessness. And for me, as a prose style, you know, I, I lapped it up, but I'm sorry, it's not literature. And one of the ways it uses, I suppose, those literary references is to mask the fact that it's basically quite a straightforward teen drama. Um, you know, I was watching it mm -hmm. with my partner, who in the first few episodes was like, is this just the OC set in Ireland? Uh, you know, it's a very conventional kind of high school drama of, you know, you know, the odd couple, basically, kind of, you know, mixing across different halves of the school or, you know, the boy from the wrong side of the tracks. These are quite conventional tropes. Um, and I think there's also something weirdly conventional about how it thinks about these people are meant to be together. Uh, you know, th that account of their first kind of hooking up sort of anatomically perfect, their first sexual encounter. I mean, I certainly remember my adolescent youth. It wasn't that the first time that you sexually explored, you felt like there was a homecoming or there was this incredible fit with this other person. It's, it's a book that weirdly takes all the kind of awkwardness out of sex and all the kind of strange 
experimental fumbling out of sex and instead implies that these two people are you know fused together quite literally um and i think the amount of sex on the screen in the cv version is one thing that viewers have had problems with because you keep seeing these beautiful bodies kind of wrapped around each other um it doesn't feel like teenage sex to me in the way that it's written it's got a real meant to be-ness about it but i think there's a sort of slight dishonesty there which i think came out much more in the tv adaptation which is that you know this is supposed to be authentic and warts and all in a way but actually what you really get is incredibly physically beautiful people who are sexually peaking much before most people sexually peak i mean the fact that marianne is so sexually confident and is having these transportative sexual experiences at 17 that might be reality for some, but it's not really a kind of realistic picture, I think, for young women watching that. I think that we, we've advanced a lot in how we understand women and sex and, and sexuality evolves and women learn themselves as time goes on. So, so this, I think, offers a very rose-tinted, almost sentimentalized view of essentially youth, beauty and truth in a way. I think there's all these sort of signals that were coming through or messages coming through, especially in the, in the TV thing about what sex is the reward for. And, and this is a very cynical view, but I thought watching it, comparing it with my own sort of teenage and early 20s life, this is reaffirming the very thing that makes so many young women who don't have perfect bodies and who don't have an easy path to love feel crap, which is if you are beautiful and you are thin and you're mysterious and you're, and you're kind of rich or popular or whatever it is, your reward will be transcendent sex with this gorgeous man. If, however, you aren't that, you don't have a sex life of any interest whatsoever and probably no one is interested in you. And I think they really made that point when they have in, in the film, uh, sorry, in the TV show, Marianne's best friend is a, is a sort of larger, more overweight um, character, or at least that's the actress they've got to play her. And she, she has no sexuality. It's just, it's not a thing. So I think there's something a little bit trickstery, something a little bit manipulative and a bit insincere by portraying this as somehow real and raw and therefore innovative, but actually really kind of entrenching quite an old trope about the reward of a beautiful girl is this kind of loving passion, but the, the less beautiful, the plainer girl cannot hope for that. That's, that's my kind of slightly bitter take on it. I suppose people now listening are starting to get used to like, <laughs> so who's very bitter about teenage sex? Um, but I, I, yeah. It's interesting the sexuality of the friends has been airbrushed out because it is there in the book. Um, Joanna, that friend, is a lesbian in the book and actually has a very happy relationship. And the slightly more demonized friend is actually, you know, dreaming of being with kind of Russian oligarchs and is kind of, you know, constantly almost prostituting herself out to kind of dangerous banker men. So a lot of those characters have been thinned down in the TV version in the same way that a lot of the politics has been taken out in the TV version. And um, I came to the book second and it's striking how important some of the context is at university politics. I mean, for instance, they're going on um, protests about Gaza. They're talking about Israel a lot. There are the kind of mentions of sort of Irish political events. All of that stuff has also been sort of screened out of um, the TV version. And the other thing that's been screened out, I'd say, is also the world of ideas. You know, we're constantly being told that one thing that makes these people special is that they're the smartest people they know. They're the cleverest people of their peer group. And that they have these amazing exchanges where they can open up to each other. Um, but the series never actually shows you them, see them talking about books. Instead, there is this endless drift back to instead them undressing each other. Every time you think and you're going to get a conversation, 
it goes back to the bedroom. And so we get no ideas and we also get no actual emotional articulacy in the sense they completely fail to talk honestly about their feelings or their relationship. But that's because, wouldn't you say, Tom, that the moral and political core of this isn't really about anything external. It's it's the religion of the self, I suppose you could say, and it's the yeah. sex as self. And you, I think, put it this way when we were talking another time that it's this is like this radiant belief in the mystery of sex, I believe is what you said. And that is a, a, an idea that I would date back to the sort of 60s and 70s when there's mysticism about sex and what it can do for you on a personal level. And that actually in the end, if you boil down the most fascinating thing about life, it's always going to be about the sex self continuum. And that's what we see here. And that's, I think, why the outer world doesn't quite exist. And I mean, you may, we could draw a comparison with, for instance, Dolly Alderton's memoir, which we talked yeah. about another week, um, which was also a massive bestseller and hit. And, and the two women seem to really kind of respect each other. That also curiously left out the outside world. So in fact, I was going to ask Tom, I mean, what, what did you make of the Irishness? In fact, an Irish setting is quite evocative for an English viewer or an English reader. Do you think that that brought out some of the politics and that brought out some of the class things in ways that wouldn't necessarily have happened had they been in England? I think people enjoyed, I certainly enjoyed the kind of exotic quality of it. And I do think if this was set in a, you know, in a, in a Bradford estate about going to Oxford, it would feel quite different than the kind of the dreamy Irish landscape, the unusual accents, uh, the Gaelic football. Um, there are a lot of touches. And actually, Sally Rooney herself has said that one of the backgrounds to the book, although you never really see it, is the impact of the 2008 financial crisis in Ireland and what that means for a whole new class of precarious people. So it's interesting how different audiences on either side of the Irish Sea, I'm sure, are responding kind of to, to different elements. Um, if I can pick up on what you were saying about the, the weird kind of narcissism of this relationship, it really is that they're presented as a dyad. And at one point she says that they've almost got a telepathic connection between them. You know, everyone else just sort of disappears and instead through each other, they find themselves. It's very reminiscent when you mentioned the 60s of the work of Roland Barthes. You ever read Barthes' mm. Lover's Discourse? I have Lover's Discourse on my shelf, but I can't admit to having read it. I mean, it's slightly cryptic, but he has this lovely idea that the language of lovers is a language which is completely almost self-enclosed. You know, it's constantly directed towards the beloved. It's a private language. And in a way, I thought this was making a similar point. And the reason is that you keep getting these scenes in which they can communicate physically so powerfully. You feel that like the mere touch of Connell can reach bits of Marianne that have never previously been reached, but he constantly fails to put into words. And in fact, it's almost comical how often they fail to properly convey the, you know, their feelings or express themselves in verbal form. And so there's something weird going on about like the eloquence of the body and the kind of the pure communication of sex versus all the social awkwardness and the kind of failure of everyday language, which comes back to this thing that sex is almost mystical, like it's the only thing that they actually can communicate in um, compared to a world where otherwise these very clever people are completely tongue-tied and are kind of falling short. Um, the other dimension of the sex I suppose I was curious about, Zoe, unlike Dolly Alderton, is that this is, at least in part, a study of sexual deviance, quote-unquote in that Marianne allows the boyfriends after Connell to hit her, uh, to use belts on her. She deliberately wants sort of absolutely feelingless, brutal kind of sex with men that she has no connection with. Um, and masochism is a really dominant element there. And I just wondered, is this the first time that a sort of kink like that has been incorporated into otherwise quite sentimental mainstream drama? Uh, I have to remind you here of a little thing called Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, oh, well, yes. <laughs> 50 Shades of 
Sligo. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think uh, Fifty Shades of Sligo. Yeah. So I think um, I think that was really the 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 kind of beginning point of that. But I think it's important to note that Marianne's need for pain is quite obviously linked to the dynamics at home. So the abuse she yeah. gets from her fa- brother, her her mother who doesn't love her, and her kind of confusion about love and whether she deserves love um, seems to be uh, completely, there's, there's quite a kind of clear, in fact, clearer than most, like her kink clearly emerges from the kind of psychic atmosphere of home and the things she picks up. I just wanted to pick up on what you said about the sort of tongue-tied nature of, of their relationship. But actually there's an irony here, which is that when they are having this mystical communion of the bodies, they actually aren't tongue-tied. In fact, there's almost a sort of pedagogical waterfall i mean like there's, there's very now sounds graphic yeah yeah that maybe i should use a different word than waterfall um <laughs> but there's there's a lot of let's just say there's a lot of maybe i mean outpouring i mean you know we're getting in similar mm-hmm. terrain the, the the kind of didactic aspect that i i found which is sort of this is how you have sex in a kind of feminist post me too way as it's happening connell's checking in can i do this do you mind if i put my finger or whatever there or can I touch you like this or I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's much more permission seeking so there's a lot of talk and actually you can imagine the sort of viewer from a different generation saying just get on with it so the way in which sex becomes not only the place where there's a there's the sort of telepathic level communication going on but it's also the place perhaps where types of language can be unleashed that that are kind of not possible just when it's in a social environment. So it's intensified communicational landscape. And I think just this funny thing I picked up on, um, but the, the trends with kink and Marianne's kink, I think you're right. I think it's not just about her um, having these kind of private psychological needs. It, there is a trend here. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey certainly wasn't hailed as literature, but it did bring into the mainstream the idea that actually a lot of women are seeing uh, pain and masochism in a, in a sexy light, or a lot of women who are feminists still sort of get, crave these things in their sexual life. But I think what's happened more broadly is that kink of the variety that maybe one would never have dreamed of talking about 15, 20, 30 years ago, at least unless you were a kind of extreme hippie or some bohemian or something has come into the mainstream and it's something about sexual subcultures just making a movement into the mainstream and like the book the ethical slut from the 90s which was a niche how-to for polyamorists has now been reprinted several times it's sold incredibly well now that polyamory is a, has come into a kind of absolute mainstream currency it's on all the apps you can track that progress through polyamory and I think it's partly to do with the a politics of gender. I mean, people are saying down with boundaries, down with oppression. So the corollary of that is to not be embarrassed or have any, you know, quote, shame about anything. So when you start celebrating the absence of shame, you start celebrating every last desire you may have. And it stops being embarrassing, not only asking for something, but it starts to be socially unacceptable to look askance at a partner who does ask for something. I was struck that she doesn't disavow the kind of masochism in that, you know, you, you suffer through these relationships in the middle of the book where you feel that she's becoming numb and that Marianne is being kind of brutalized by these men. But at the end, the conclusion with Connell, when Connell doesn't want to hit her, 
the conclusion isn't, oh, thank goodness, she's been liberated from that kind of more abusive, controlling kind of love. Instead, explicitly, she, it's about a different kind of submission that she's looking for. If I can just read a little bit um, towards the end of the book, um, this is just before uh, the book concludes. Um, she was in his power. He had chosen to redeem her. She was redeemed. It was so unlike him to behave that way in public that he must have been doing it on purpose to please her. How strange to feel herself so completely under the control of another person, but also how ordinary. No one can be independent of other people completely, so why not give up the attempt? Um, so this willing submission is one of the big themes in the, in the book, and it does, it does complicate what would otherwise seem like a straightforward story about liberation or a straightforward story about abuse that there are demons that she needs to kind of leave behind. Um, in terms of demons, the one other thing I want to talk about, Zoe, is like the portrayal of Connor as someone who is completely tormented by his class background. Um, yeah. And so much of the TV and the book is about the agony of being this kid from Sligo uh, who dares to be different from his male peers, you know, who chooses not to fit in, to not be like the cool kids, but instead to embrace that kind of bookish part of himself thanks to Marianne, but nonetheless feels that by doing that, by going to Trinity, he's going to end up burning bridges with everything that made him what he was before. And so it's a sort of interesting portrait of a, of a young man who feels like he's a class traitor, you know, who feels like he, in order to advance, has got to kind of murder, quite literally, um, the earlier part of himself. Um, there's a nice quote here, just one more thing, um, where he's thinking about going to Trinity and he's saying, uh, if he went to Trinity, he could start going to dinner parties and having conversations about the Greek bailout. He could fuck some weird looking girls who turn out to be bisexual. Uh, I've read the Golden Notebook. He could tell them. It's true. He has read it. And it ends. But the old Connell, the one all his friends know, that person would be dead in a way or worse, buried alive and screaming under the earth. So the kind of arc of the book is, I guess, both of them need to bury the older version of themselves. And although this has been pitched as a love story and it's about sort of sentimental, sort of tender love story, it's a quite violent act of repudiation. Like by going towards Trinity and kind of staying with each other, they shed a lot of the kind of baggage of their, of their earlier selves. And I guess that's where some of the therapeutic um, energy or the sort of therapeutic direction of the book really comes out. What, do you, what would you make of the way Sally Rooney positions family? I suppose, in this ecology of damage and selfhood. It's a pretty toxic environment. What I would say about Sally Rooney family is even though the mother, Lorraine, is a very sympathetic character, it's interesting she's always referred to as Lorraine in the same way that Marianne's mother is always referred to as Denise. These are adults. They aren't mothers um, yeah. in some ways. Yeah, interestingly, they're both single mothers and they're also interestingly families where the fathers are absent. Uh, in the case of Marianne, we know that the father had once been abusive um, and he's now dead, but hypocritically, the family still attend the mass for him. In the case of Connell, the father is you know, a very temporary fling for his mother and whom he has no access to. Um, but otherwise, especially in Marianne's case, this very bitter relationship with her brother, who's jealous of her, family is a nightmarish kind of world and a world in which affection and violence are all kind of tied up together. I mean, and that comes back to her kink again, is that she can't separate out you know, the world of emotion from a kind of brutality or from a kind of force. And there are so many little symbolic acts of violence being inflicted on her by her family all the way through um, that going, that she has to kind of, you know, rebirth herself. You know, she has to create a whole new kind of person out of the wreckage, I guess, that that leaves behind. Class is huge. Class is, class is everywhere yeah. in this. And it's about social mobility, isn't it? 
the amount of abuse of Trinity in the course of the book, which you see a little bit in, um, in the TV adaptation. But it's interesting that Sally Rooney herself went to Trinity. She got one of these magical scholarships, but she clearly feels you know, very uncomfortable with that privilege. You know, there is the sense that you get one of these scholarships and you get put on a pedestal. Um, and there's a whole lot of bad faith or anxiety about having that kind of privilege when other students are kind of struggling to get by. So it's all about the violence of class, really, as you say. Class is the thing that separates them. And it's also a thing that kind of poisons so many of the other kind of friendships and the kind of relationships in the book. And um, is one reason why Marianne's you know, family background is so awful, is the way that money has come to kind of pollute so many of those other kind of relationships. Um, in terms of the thing about transcendence, all I was going to say is that interestingly at the front of the book, epigraph for it is taken from Daniel Deronda. Uh, and there's this very nice quote. Uh, it is one of the secrets in that change of mental poise, which has been fitly named conversion. Again, you want to think about relationships as a kind of religious, mystical experience. That to many of us, among, sorry, that to many among us, neither heaven nor earth has any revelation till some personality touches theirs with a peculiar influence, subduing them into receptiveness. And so there's something about subduing, you know, and subjection again, and sort of domination of the other, but that also conversion, that this is a kind of quasi-mystical experience in which they become somebody else, um, that really is the kind of arc of the book. Did you find either the book or the TV thing moving, Zoe? <laughs> I found it hard to be moved. I think that, you know, the, the, the role of therapy in it was... That's a very modern addition to stories. Daniel Deronda with therapy would have been much less moving. You know, Gwendolyn going to see, get CBT or see a counselor um, <laughs> about her horrendous, you know, grandcore and her husband. So I think the foregrounding of therapy uh, is very interesting, but, but I think it got in the way of me being able to do the work myself to find it particularly moving. Um, seeing a, a man cry when he's having a really brilliant therapy session, it's almost like, the work's being done. I don't need to, to worry about it. But I would just say that, you know, it's clear now that no drama is complete without either that personal transformation or that big therapy scene or that therapeutic mm. arc. Um, again, the Dolly Alderton, but I, you know, I don't know if any of anyone here or listening saw Wanderlust with Tony Collette. Mm -hmm. That also had this kind of epic therapy scene that took up the entire uh, one of the entire episodes, it was about a couple navigating an open relationship. And it's interesting how sexy that makes the male characters now, yeah. rather than that be a sign of sort of embarrassment, that they're like, the desire is heightened by the vulnerability. Yeah, so I think that takes us to like maybe the, the final big point that I would want to make, which is about damage again. So the question kind of continues throughout. What, do the, what does she mean by normal? Yeah, they're clearly not quite normal. They're clearly not, not that normal. What's she getting at? And I realized, and, and actually watching the TV series really drove this home for me, what they mean by normal is damaged. It's this way that you, you don't put your actions, your values, or your beliefs first and foremost. You put your damage first and foremost, and that's the love gift. That's the aphrodisiac. So there's a scene um, in, the, in one of the episodes of the ad adaptation where they're in bed as friends in Marianne's gorgeous family's uh, villa, uh, gorgeous villa in Italy, and they're just supposed to be friends. She's seeking refuge from her abusive, essentially, boyfriend. Connell's there to protect her, of course, 
And she says something like, am I not too damaged for you? Or I, I, you know, I thought nobody could love me because I'm so damaged or something like that. And this is just such catnip for him. I mean, immediately all the kind of attempts to just lie there as friends is, is overpowered. The surge of lust engulfs them after she's <laughs> dropped the D word, damage. That's also underpinning the gender codes. That's the, that's the language of masculinity now. The successful man, whether it be in a reality show or in a drama like this, has to show his vulnerability. And that is what makes him sexy. Don't you agree? I do agree. I do agree. Where this suppose, I suppose there's a little bit of maturity at the end of this is I liked the fact that they did agree to separate. Like at the end, it, I quite like the fact that it isn't a sort of happy ever after. It's a sort of happy ever apart because they've done that work of like healing each other through the relationship. Mm. They don't actually need to kind of be physically kind of bound together at the end of it. Um, but yeah, the way that, the way that damage signifies authenticity and the way that you know it's all can be forgiven all of these failures to communicate all of these moments of misunderstanding which almost become comical in their repetition when you're watching the episodes you're like oh god just speak to her oh no you're gonna have sex you won't probably tell her what happened last time it'll be another year before you clarify this um everything is being postponed you know the real honest conversation they need to have is being postponed but it's okay because they're wounded um, and so it's a weird mix of them being hypersensitive and yet the agony and the difficulty they have in expressing that or kind of sharing that damage is what keeps you watching. So Tom, why do you think there's all this hype over the Sally Rooney novel and TV adaptation? So I think people uh, have bought into the idea that this is their own adolescence on screen. Um, I think a lot of middle-aged people, if you read the critical reviews, have enjoyed remembering their own experience of first love. And so there's something about it being a kind of rite of passage story that people remember, the sort of pain of teenage heartbreak, the going to university that makes it relatable. Um, but I also think it's kind of, it's, a, it's, it's genius is also its limitation. Like it is a very slight piece of work. I mean, it's really pared down. It's really thin. It's even more thin um, in the BBC version. But as a result, people enjoy spending a lot of time with two characters. Um, and I have to say, the length at which the BBC filmed this thing, you know, six hours they devoted to uh, normal people. I think they managed to do war and peace in the same time. <laughs> featured, you yeah. Know, you know, Napoleonic invasion of Russia. This was a long, long, leisurely take on this very small story. And I think that's the other thing that why the hype is that people felt that they could kind of, you know, enjoy every last nuance, every last evocative shot, every last sort of whiff of memory could be squeezed out of it because it was a small story told in very slow time. What about you, Zoe? I couldn't agree more. I think you've been pretty much put your finger on it. I, I think the only thing to add is just the sex. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the other reason for the hype. So that's all we have time for this week. Join us next time for a discussion about Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. 